Okay, let me just very quickly introduce Ron Christie, who's a reader at Sussex University and also head of the um, Prof. Center for Research in Cognitive Science at the Sussex University. Hi. And he'll be talking about the relation between cognition and computation. Right, and trying to overcome some of the problems that have been posed for a computationalist understanding of cognition and mind. Okay, uh, I'm going to, um, well, it says we're going to discuss four related claims or ideas. So the main part of the talk will be discussing this defense of computationalism, a defense of a computational view of mind, which I call the transparent defense, and I hope to make that clear, no pun intended, um, while I'm uh, doing that. Then if I, if there's time, I hope to get to three other issues that I think are related to that. One is the falsity of the Church-Turing thesis, or apparent falsity of it, and one is the falsity of what you might call pan-computationalism, the view that everything is computational. And then finally, even if computationalism is false, even if cognition isn't computation, I still think a strong version of artificial intelligence is possible. That is, you can do more than just simulate minds, even if minds aren't computational. Okay, so what is this transparent defense of computationalism? What is transparent computationalism? Well, think about the claim, cognition is computation. It's actually ambiguous. And uh, you could be like Bill Clinton here and say, well, is cognition computational? It depends on what the meaning of is is. You know, what do we mean when we say cognition is computation? Well, there are at least two ways you can construe that. And one way is the opaque way, and one way is the transparent way. What does that mean? Well, by opaque construal, I mean the claim that cognition is computation is uh, the claim that the best way to understand cognition is using the concepts and techniques that we currently take to be the best way of understanding what computation is. So whatever our best current theory of what computation is, that, those concepts and those theories should, uh, um, are the best way to understand what cognition is. That's the opaque construal. But there's another construal, as I said, the transparent way of understanding the claim cognition is computation. And on that way of understanding the claim, you don't say that cognition is whatever we currently take computation to be, but Cognition is best understood in what, in terms of the concepts that we will eventually use, whatever turns out to be the best account of computationalism, then those concepts will also turn out to be the best account of, whatever turns out to be the best concepts for giving an account of computation, what computers do, will also turn out to be the best concepts for giving an account of what cognizers do in general. So, the idea is that most of the critiques of computationalism, I think, only address one of these two construals of computationalism. They only address the way, the claim that cognition is computation, they only attack that by attacking current theories of computation uh, and saying those accounts of computation can't do, provide a good explanation of what mind is. But that won't really count as a rejection of computation in the transparent sense if it turns out that those concepts aren't actually good ways of understanding even what computers do. So if we're wrong about what 
makes computers work right now, if we don't have a good theory about what makes PCs and Macs and you know, things that we consider everyday computers, if we don't have a good theory of what makes those things work, if it turns out that our current theory isn't actually a very good theory of what makes those things work, then you shouldn't hold that against computa computationalism about the mind because what we really want to know is whether whatever does turn out to be a good theory of these things, whether those concepts and those theories will be a good account of mind. So transparent computationalism isn't really threatened by these critiques that only attack the opaque reading of the com computationalist claim, that only talk about computation as it happens to be right now or how, how, or how we happen to think about it right now, as opposed to computation as it could be or a better account of computation. So if you want to defend computationalism against these critiques, there's a transparent strategy you can follow. For each of the critiques, you can uh, present a current, a current opaque view of computation that the critique is uh, attacking and look at that critique. But then if you can provide an alternative view of computation that avoids the criticism and then motivate that alternative view independently, that is give good, good, give good reasons why the alternative view of computation is to be preferred to the standard view of computation that the critique was assuming, then you've successfully avoided that critique. So let me look at some, I'm going to go quickly through some critiques of computationalism that you might encounter in your studies. I can't really do justice to them here because I've only got a little bit of time. But just to give you an idea of how you might make this transparent move in order to defend computationalism as a, in its transparent sense uh, against critiques that were directed only against a particular, maybe mistaken, idea of computationalism. So let's take the dynamical criticism of computationalism. On this, uh, the, the opaque view of computation, say a, a popular current view about what computation is, is that computation always involves discrete steps in an algorithm. And that's just what computation is. And so you introduce somebody like Tim Van Gelder, who says, well, if that's what computation is, then computation is it going to be very, a very good way of understanding the mind because cognition, as we see it in natural systems, isn't inherently discrete, doesn't always go through steps. Maybe sometimes when we're deliberating uh, quite explicitly, engaging in logical reasoning, or maybe thinking about chess, maybe, perhaps, in those very few situations, you get something that sort of looks like discrete steps. But really, most of cognition is fundamentally dynamical, engaged with the world in real time. There aren't any discrete steps of go first doing A and then doing B to the pulse of a clock. Instead, it's all asynchronous. Um, unlike in the discrete, temporally discrete view of computation, actual duration of time matters for a process in cogn real time cognition. How much time the process takes up might make a difference to the outcome of that process, whereas in, um, supposedly in uh, the conventional view of computation, uh, the only thing that matters temporally with respect to computation is order of steps, not the amount of time they take up. So on this view of what computation is, and on this view of, of cognition, this observation about cognition being inherently dynamical, 
and temporal and engage the world in a real-time way, cognition isn't computation. Computationalism is false. It doesn't, it's not a good account of what cognition is. Well, the transparent response to that is to look for an alternative view of computation and say, or to notice that actually that discrete algorithmic view might work okay for some kinds of computation, but it doesn't work for other kinds of real-world computation in actual systems that we build. So if we can generalize the notion of what's called an effective procedure, something, uh, uh, a process that we can rely upon to produce a particular result, if it doesn't just have to be uh, sets of discrete uh, well, sets of discrete steps arranged to form an algorithm, but rather could include any physical process that's reproducible and can be relied upon to always produce the same result, including dynamical ones, then we'll have a more general notion of computation. Why does computation have to include uh, discrete steps? I mean, for instance, we already have the notion of analog computers. In some sense, analog computers were the first computers. We already had a notion of devices that we could use to compute, even though they didn't go through discrete stages and follow algorithms in the sense of uh, th this kind of linguistic sense. So we already have an independent motivation there. We already have the prior notion of analog computers. We didn't say they weren't computers because they didn't go through discrete steps. Instead, we just said, well, they're analog computers and they're digital computers, and the digital ones turned out to be more practical for many reasons. They were more resistant to noise. Uh, John von Neumann made a good case that if we wanted to do certain kinds of things that we wanted to do with computers, then we better use digital discrete step systems. Uh, so computers, they're easier to program, they are more resistant to noise than the analog ones, which require uh, completely different uh, engineering techniques. But that didn't mean that the analogs weren't computers by definition, it's just that they were a variety of computers that wasn't very practical for the, that time and for those types of uses. So we already have an independent motivation for this more general notion of computation. Um, but also, I think even the systems we build now aren't just evaluated in terms of their formal computational properties. You, you wouldn't be considered to be a good engineer of a, of a system that is supposed to control in real time an airplane wing if you just got all the discrete functional states right but didn't get the actual temporal dynamical properties right. So just because you say, well, in theory, this thing should move the uh, airplane wing exactly right. Um, okay, maybe in practice, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't do things at the right time, but, but hey, I, I did all the right computational steps. No, we would say, well, then you obviously haven't really, obviously there's more to doing this job right than just getting the discrete steps in their temporal order. There's actual duration involved. And to put a, sh a line there and to say one of those tasks is the, tasks, is the top computational task and the other one is something else, I think is not very helpful. Instead, we should just see it as a computational system, but computation involves real time and real duration sometimes. Um, so I'm pushing for a more general notion of, uh, of computation here. That would elude Van Gelder's criticism. Um, yes, cognition probably isn't just about going through discrete stages in an algorithm. But that's okay, computation isn't about just that either. Another kind of critique of uh, computationalism you see is based on, this is a more philosophical critique um, rather than Van Gelder's, even more philosophical critique than Van Gelder's. It's a, a critique from the perspective of a view called externalism. Um, 
the opaque view of computation that it attacks, the current notion of computation, the current conventional wisdom about what computation is like, is that computational properties are syntactic and local. That is, what uh, particular computational properties a device has can be found just by looking in that device. You don't need to look at its environment. You look locally right here, and you can find out what program it's running, what step it is in that program, what its data structures are, etc. The critique observes, somebody like Jerry Fodor, a philosopher of mind, observes that, hey, the mind isn't like that. Psychological properties that we're trying to explain when we explain cognition are semantic. They're about things. They're relational. They're related to the world. They're external. They don't just depend on what's going on locally inside the head, but which psychological state you're in might depend on your context. So they're non-local. So we've got a mismatch. If computation, if computational properties are local and psychological properties in general are non-local, then cognition can't be computation. Well, and that means there could be a computational psychology. What's the transparent computationalist response? Well, there's an alternative view about what computation is. There um, have been some people who have argued that even computational explanations actually do appeal to states of the environment. So really it's a myth that uh, the way we identify computational states is just by their local properties. Um, and it's a myth, according to this view, that uh, computational explanations don't use the environment um, in making explanations in exactly the same way as explanations of mind require reference to the environment Explanations of computational states require reference to the environment. And um, an independent, independent motivation for this is uh, embedded computational systems. If you have uh, computers that are um, embedded in a network, interacting with each other, interacting with the world, people are inputting data into them, they're outputting, data, uh, outputting things which affect their future inputs, um, if they don't have all the code that they're going to run resident locally on the machine, but maybe fetch some code from a file server somewhere else or off the web or something, then it becomes less and less the case that you can say that really the computation is going on solely in this computer, but rather um, it's sometimes going on just inside this computer, sometimes it's spread across these two computers doing this networking interaction, sometimes it's involving this human who's inputting the flight reservation system data. So. The externalist, the same pressures that get us to reject the internalist picture of human cognition also, I think, motivate us to reject the internalist picture of computation in real systems that we build. A third critique against, uh, and maybe the most famous critique against computationalism was uh, proposed by John Searle in 1980. Um, it was against the view of computation uh, that sees uh, all computational properties as formal and syntactic, and just a matter of following rules and manipulating symbols. The non-formal properties on this view of a computation are mere implementation detail. So all that matters with, uh, if two computational systems is the, the formal symbol processing rule following description of the two systems, the fact that one is implemented on a PC, one's implemented on a Mac, or one's implemented in silicon, and one's implemented out of beer cans and loo rolls, that's irrelevant to the computational description. Those aren't computational properties, Searle was assuming. And 
So if all the computational properties that are relevant are these formal properties, then you can launch this attack that Searle launched against the idea that computation can explain mindedness. So John Searle puts forward this argument. Maybe you've heard, how many here have heard of the Chinese room argument? Great, so I don't have to go over it. So the idea was that um, you can, running a program is insufficient for understanding. So a system cannot understand solely by virtue of understanding. How do we know that? Because Searle says, well, I could run the program. I run the program that supposedly is sufficient for understanding Chinese, but I run it, all that happens is meaningless symbol manipulation. Yeah, from the outside, it looks like somebody understands Chinese, but look, I'm in there, I know I don't understand Chinese. If there was any understanding of Chinese going on, I would know about it. I don't know about it, I don't understand Chinese. So therefore, that kind of formal symbol processing doesn't give you understanding of Chinese. So we can't have a computational psychology. Computation is all about formal symbol processing. Formal symbol processing doesn't give you minds. Therefore, computational psychology isn't possible. Well, what's the alternative view? What's the transparent response? The alternative view is that, look, the only way we can distinguish computational processes from non-computational processes is to point out that the computational ones have a semantics. So a baseball hitting a window and breaking it that's a physical process, but we don't call it computation. It's not about anything. The processes going on inside a laptop or a, sufficient, or a properly programmed computer, they are about things. They're about, about things. They're about passengers on planes. They're about flights. They're about reservations. Um, everything that we call computation is about something, has semantics. So if having a semantics is crucial to what we consider to be computational, then it really is a mistake to see computation as just meaningless formal symbol manipulation. So, on this view, some properties that current formal theories of computation, I mean, Searle isn't uh, the culprit here. He was just taking an idea about what computation is that he was handed by people who are supposed to be the experts about computation. You go to a computer science department and say, is computation just formal symbol manipulation? They might agree with you and say, yeah, that, yeah, it is. But what I'm saying here is a bit, maybe considered a bit arrogant, I'm saying that those people don't really know what computation is. They're studying aspects of computation, and I'm not saying the work is not useful. Yes, they're putting constraints on computational systems, and their theorems are true, and they're useful in building computational systems. But that doesn't mean they really understand what distinguishes, as Brian Smith would say, his IBM from his BMW. There's something that makes one of those a computer and about something, and another one is just a complex machine. Well-designed machine, but just a complex machine. So semantics, is, if semantics is important, and that's an example of some properties that current formal theories of computation take to be irrelevant to what counts as a computation or which computational state you're in, and on an alternative view would turn out to be crucial to determining what computational state a system is in. And the independent motivation for that is, as I've already mentioned, is we want to distinguish computational processes from non-computational processes. And again, the real-time computational control of an airplane wing, I think, again, we wouldn't uh, consider someone to have done their job properly if they say, well, look, I got all the formal aspects of the system correct. Um, I didn't get the actual, uh, the actual implementation turns out to be too heavy to fly in the plane or turns out to have the wrong dynamic properties, 
Uh, but that's just implementation detail. I'm not concerned about that. I'm just concerned with getting the formal properties right. We would consider that to be missing, misunderstanding how the computational part of the system is supposed to fit in with the rest of the system. So we wouldn't consider that to be good computer design. Um, so that's, I think, an independent motivation to say the way that things are done now, already in practice, we recognize that there's more to getting the computational job done right than just getting the formal structure right. So that's why we have an independently grounded alternative that can resist Searle's conclusion. What, what's the upshot for the Chinese room? The upshot for the Chinese room is that we can say uh, the Searle Im implementation of the program is not computationally identical to some other implementation of the very same program. And so maybe the Searle implementation of the program doesn't produce Chinese, but another implementation of the program that was fast enough, that didn't involve uh, a human being looking at signs and putting them away. That thing might actually be um, aware, even though Searle wasn't aware. So there are other ways to respond to the Chinese room as well, but I just thought I'd, um, I'm only focusing on this one because it fits in with the, uh, the transparent approach. Okay, so that's, those are some examples of um, how you can resist critiques of computationalism if you take that transparent reading. Um, and in the uh, rest of the lecture, I'd like to go into those other three issues that I mentioned uh, were related to this idea of new computationalism. First, some remarks about the Church-Turing thesis. The Church-Turing thesis is the claim that um, if anything is, how should I put this? I don't want to be circular about this. Um, if there's a deterministic procedure for producing some result, then there must be a Turing machine that can produce the same result. Um, it wasn't just about Turing machines. There's a whole family of formalisms of computation. Uh, Turing machines are one. I think uh, um, recursive functions are another. And um, there's a, a another kind of automaton that uh, it turns out to be equivalent. Um, maybe it's uh, cleaning notation, for instance, I'm not sure. But there are all these different formalisms that have been proven to be equivalent to each other, that any function that's expressible or computable in one of them is expressible or computable in the other. And then, those are, those, are un those are mathematical results that can't be questioned. But then there's this hypothesis that, given that we haven't been able to find a set of formal, of a f some type of formal system that can compute a function that isn't in this set of functions that could be computed by Turing machines, maybe it turns out that anything that could be done in a deterministic, reliable manner, uh, anything for which there's an effective procedure to, for accomplishing it, that maybe that thing must be computable by some Turing machine. There must be a Turing machine that can do that. That's an interesting idea. And because nobody's ever found, supposedly nobody's ever found a counterexample to it, most people who think about computation and the theory of computation accept this uh, thesis. Now, notice that the thesis can never be proven because in stating this, this thesis, there's an, you're explicitly, explicitly acknowledging that there's a distinction between the opaque theory of what computation is and the transparent phenomenon of computation itself. Because what this claim is saying is that our, this theory about what computation is, this model, Turing machine theory, our bet is that it captures perfectly 
everything in the phenomenon of computation. But that can never be proven because what you've got here is a formal thing, and what you've got there is an informal notion of stuff in the world. So no one's ever going to, uh, and I, I think computational theorists would, would admit this, uh, certainly encyclopedia entries on the church Turing thesis acknowledge this, that it can never be established because to establish something, to prove something, you can only prove formal things. And this, by its very nature, is a claim about the relationship between a formal thing and an informal thing. That is an intuitive notion about what computation is, a pre-theoretical notion about what computation is. So here we have a claim that everything in our, in our pre-theoretic notion of what computation is can be done by something in this formal notion of what computation is, the Turing machine theory or any of its equivalent formal, formal structures. Now, there have been some arguments against the possibility of artificial intelligence. I'll get back to this in a second, but I just want to, in a, just a few seconds, try to introduce to you these very complex arguments. Can't go into them in detail, not enough time. But what they, what peop, the people who put these arguments forward thought they were doing, they thought they were showing that there are some aspects of mind that can't possibly be formalized. Because what they showed um, was that there are some things, apparently, that we can do that, no, that we could prove no formal system could do, no Turing machine could do, no computational system could do. Well, that's, if that's true, then AI is going to be impossible, because there's always going to be something. AI is, if it's, made, if it's based in computation, if you're trying to do AI by building computers, or things that compute, then these arguments, if they're right, would show that there's aspects of us that could never be modeled, never be reproduced by a computational system. Strong AI is impossible. Actually, even weak AI is impossible. So made a distinction between strong AI and weak AI. Strong AI is actually building uh, artif artifacts or computational systems that are, have minds. That's certainly going to be impossible in this view. But even weak AI, which is the idea that you could simulate minds, um, uh, with computers. Uh, Penrose makes the point that these arguments show that even that is going to be impossible because there are things that we can do that computers can't even simulate. This is a very strong claim. Now, I think that those arguments don't really show what, they, what the people who put them forward think they're showing. I think instead, these arguments are only highlighting a special case of a general property. Now, if you don't know these arguments, this might not mean a lot to you, but you have to take my word for it that really what these arguments are showing is something else. They're showing this. For any set of things that can answer questions, you can always construct a question such that no member of that set of things can answer it correctly, even though there are some things outside that set that can answer it correctly. So the trivial example for you guys, or for us in this room, is um, um, if I said, um, you're all sitting down and I'm standing up. So I could number all the people who are sitting down. There's the first person sitting down, the second person. Everybody will have, have a number, okay? So I can talk about the nth person, nth sitting down person. So I can ask, is the nth sitting down person's answer to this question no? So is the fifth sitting down person's answer to this question no? One, two, three, four, five. Okay? Now, you can only answer yes or no. What's your answer? Is the fifth person, sitting down person's answer to this question, no. No. <laughs> right, well if you say no, you're wrong, because your answer is no. Right, you just said no. 
wrong. You got it wrong. But if you said yes, you would have got it wrong as well. If you say yes, my answer is no. Oh, no, that's all right. So you can't answer this question correctly. The best thing to do is what you were trying to do there is just not say anything. That was the best thing. Your first instinct was right. Normally in a classroom, I'd say, don't be quiet. Go ahead and say what. But in this case, being quiet was probably the best thing. Um, and that's true for all of you. For if you're the seventh person along, I just say, is the seventh sitting down person's answer to this question? But notice I can answer this. I can answer, I'm not sitting down, so the, the question doesn't ever mention me. I'm not the first sitting down person, I'm not the tenth sitting down person, I'm not the twentieth sitting down person. So if you ask me, is the first sitting down person's answer to this question no, I can say uh, no, or yes, or whatever, whatever it turns out, uh, the first person's answer to the question is, I can say, if, 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 if that person says no, I can say it's no. If it's yes, I, I mean, if it's no, I can say it's yes. Um, the point is that we're assuming that the people who are answering this question um, have, to, have to be consistent. So I know that it, the answer can't be no. So I can say no, the answer isn't no. Because I know that the person can never give uh, the answer no. Um, doesn't mean it's yes, because it might be that they say nothing at all. They just uh, equivalent of a Turing machine running on forever. But uh, the point is, I don't stumble into difficulty by saying that. So when people prove things about Turing machines not being able to do what people could do, they did something similar. They found a, f a question that was about Turing machines, and they said, is the nth Turing machine's answer to this question no? And what a surprise. No Turing machine could answer that question. Because if, if they did try to answer that question for all n, uh, then they would end up getting to their own case, and they'd end up making the same mistake. They, no Turing machine can answer that question correctly when it's about Turing machines. And we could, because we aren't mentioned in the question. But there's a similar question for people. Just like I did it for sitting down people, you could do it for people in general. Is the nth person's answer to this question no? People won't, no person will be able to answer that for their own case, but a Turing machine isn't prevented from answering correctly. So really, these, these arguments only found out that this is generally true. For any set of things that can answer a question, you can always construct a question that no member of that set can answer, even though some things outside the set can. So really, Turing machines and human beings are in the same situation with respect to these tricky questions. There are tricky questions that prevent people from answering them correctly. There are tricky questions that prevent Turing machines from answering them correctly. So really, oh, skip this point. Um, so really, uh, it shows that Turing machines can, in a sense, compute things that we can't. We can compute things that Turing machines can't. Um, it's not a, it, it doesn't pose a fundamental problem for computationalism because we have exactly the same limitation as Turing machines. Turing machines can't answer their own, uh, these are called halting questions, non-halting questions. They can't answer their own non-halting questions. We can't answer our own non-halting questions. We're in exactly the same situation. Therefore, there's no problem to computationalism. Um, now, you might think that this violates uh, the result that I, the claims I just made on the previous slide, you might think that this violates Turing's famous result. Turing claimed that there are universal machines. There are machines that can, people would say, compute any function. But that's not what he showed. A lot of people think that. A lot of intelligent, supposedly educated people think that. But Turing actually only showed that there exists a machine that can simulate any computation. And that's different from actually performing the computation. Um, it's a technical distinction that I can tell you about over email or something, but really, uh, just because you're simulating a function, simulating another Turing machine computing a function, you are not actually thereby computing that function yourself. 
Um, it's, uh, it sounds like a trivial distinction, but it actually is a formal distinction that makes all the difference in this area. So um, for those who know something about that, there isn't any conflict. As I say, Turing's result is about simulation, not computation. Have I run over time yet? There's a little bit of time left. Okay, I think there was one more point on the last slide that I wanted to get back to. Right, so actually, what I don't make explicit here, I think the Church-Turing thesis turns out to be false. It turns out to be that there are some functions that we can compute that Turing machines can't. So, when people thought, you know, could it be that Turing machines are, um, really, can they, they can really compute anything that is, is computable? Well, yes and no. No, in a strict sense. There are technically some functions that we can compute that, that Turing machines can't, um, like the Turing machine non-halting question. Does the nth Turing machine not halt when given this question? Does it, not, does it say no? Not halting is a, is a way of um, saying no. Um, I'm not saying yes. Um, when that's, we can compute that function. Turing machines can't. So that's an example of the falsity of the church Turing thesis in some way. But in another sense, the Church-Turing thesis isn't false, because although there's that particular function which we can compute, which Turing machines can't, in general, as I pointed out, we have exactly the same limitation. Turing machines can compute something that's roughly equivalent to all the fu functions we can compute, even though they can't compute exactly the same set. They have the same limitations as we do. They stumble on their own self-referential question like this, and we stumble on our own. So there's no big attack on the Church-Turing thesis here. Technically, it's not true. Technically, there are functions that we can compute that Turing machines can't, but um, the general, the, because those, those types of, because the Turing machine can still compute something of the same kind, uh, then it doesn't turn out to be uh, an important limitation for the purposes of designing computational systems and getting them to do things. Okay, so moving on to the last two slides, I think. Um, there's a view called pan-computationalism that's becoming popular in some circles. It's the view that everything is a computer. Everything in the universe. The universe is a computer. All physical systems are computing. Now, there are two ways of, that this is expressed. There's one which is uh, <coughs> was put forward by... Uh, John Searle and Hilary Putnam, in a way, that was not really used to say something positive about the universe. It was used to say something negative about computation. It was saying, look, I can interpret any physical system as implementing some computation or other. So that just makes the notion of computation trivial and meaningless. If everything can be interpreted as being a computer, then it can't be interesting about something that it's a computer. So it can't be interesting about the brain that it's a computer, even if it is. The brain's a computer, sure. This table's a computer. Everything's a computer. Boring, boring, boring. That's what the that's the Putnam view. Now I think that's wrong, and I've written an article, other people have written articles about why that view is wrong. Everything can't be understood. Maybe everything can be understood to be uh, instantiating some computer, but Putnam would only really be threatening uh, the view that um, cognition is computation, if everything could be seen as instantiating every computer, every computation. And because describing something as computational 
requires that it have meet certain causal constraints and certain, I would say, semantic constraints. Not this table cannot be uh, interpreted as, say, implementing Microsoft Word. Um, it can't. Uh, it doesn't have the right causal structure. So, despite what Putnam says and what Searle says, um, we don't have a vacuous notion of computation. But there's a more plausible sense, uh, and I think it isn't defeated by the, the paper I wrote here or, or Chalmers' paper here. And that's just the idea that everything has some computational description or other. Not everything is every computation, but this table does have a computational description. It's not Microsoft Word, but it's something. It's a pretty boring computational description. But it is still, it still has a computational description, so it is a Turing machine in some sense. Now, as I said before, I don't think that really broad notion of computation should be accepted because we have an intuitive notion about computational systems uh, being different. When, when computers were invented, we had something new that we didn't have before. Uh, it isn't that we just had more computational systems. So I think it would be a better idea to hold out for a notion of computation that allows you to say why some physical systems, even if they have some formal, trivial uh, uh, computational description in terms of Turing machines, why they aren't computers, and why these things, which also have Turing machine descriptions, but also meet some other constraint, why they are computers. So I think we need to supplement. Uh, it isn't sufficient for something to have a computational description in my book, that it be really doing computing. Um, so we need something more. I think it's semantics, but maybe it's not. But still, I, that's just, I wanted to make a remark against pan-computationalism there. So finally, back to computation in mind. I said the last thing I would do is show how even if computationalism, even transparent computationalism, even if that's false, how you still might think strong AI is possible. So traditionally, th there are two ways of understanding how computation is relevant to understanding or replicating the mind. You have weak AI, we talked about that before, simulating the behavior of mental systems. And then there's strong AI, actually claiming that if you run the right program or create the right computational system, that system will be a minded thing, we'll have a mind. Well, I think there's a third way uh, of understanding how computation could be relevant to mind. That is, even if computationalism is false, you might be able to have strong AI. How's that? Well, it's not because I think everything's computational, so therefore uh, minds are computational. I don't mean that, no. We've rejected pan-computationalism. Um, even with a restricted, robust notion of computation, uh, what's, how, how could you uh, produce minds computationally if computationalism is false? Well, I think of computation as the ultimate plastic. Computers are the ultimate plastic. That is, by just putting the right code into this device, I can change its physical characteristics pretty radically in a very nonlinear way. I can make it take some particular subset of trillions and billions and gazillions of states. The number of possible states in that machine is far greater than the number of particles in the universe. It's, they're really, uh, these things really have an enormous number of states and I can make it take on one of those states as opposed to another one by just giving it the right code, by giving it the right program. So right now they're pretty limited in terms of how that difference in state transforms into a difference in say dynamical behavior. But it needn't always, it needn't be that way. It needn't remain that way. 
So computation is a convenient way to configure a system's causal profile and therefore its dynamical profile. And so I think we've got a position here that's in between merely simulating the mind with computers and actually saying that being a mind is a matter of computing. What I can do is use comp computation as a way to get a physical system to be whatever it takes to be a, a, a cognizing system. So for instance, some people think that um, only living things can have minds. And they think that life isn't just a matter of having a particular functional description or other. It's not a matter of being in a particular formal state or processing rules in a particular way. You have to actually have to have a particular dynamical existence in the world, have a particular um, causal structure that's not just functional, but interact with the world in the right way. Well, I think that if what I'm saying is right, then that doesn't imply that one cannot program a system to be alive and therefore to have a mind, because you could put an arbitrary, uh, in the right kind of computational system, maybe one we haven't developed yet, but for instance, some people at Sussex are developing. There's a guy named Bill Big, who uh, is exactly looking at this kind of thing. Unbeknownst to me, when I made this, uh, proposed this talk for a conference uh, several months ago, uh, when I came up with this, this idea, a long, much longer time back than that, um, I didn't know that there are people who are actually trying to do this. They're trying to get physical things to have, like uh, in his case, it's um, uh, a robotic arm. I think it's a robotic arm. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a, uh, something that rotates on one joint. Um, he's trying to get that thing to have arbitrary dynamic profiles just by uh, sending the right parameters to his computational controller that that controls that arm. So he's got a computational controller that when you send it the right parameters, it might make the arm resistance to force, or it might make it impervious to force, or it might make it bounce back quickly like that. So you can make it take on any of those dynamical profiles just by sending different parameters to setting different parameters in the system. And in a way, that's, um, for those of you who uh, know about Van Gelder's Watt governor, uh, he's doing exactly what Van Gelder said would be silly or impossible with respect to uh, controlling um, a, a steam engine or an analog device. He's actually writing computational code and has code in a system such that he can get it to behave like a relatively arbitrary physical device just by changing these uh, symbolic parameters. So I think that's an example of how we might use computation to create, if, if, if being alive and being a thinker is to have a particular dynamical profile, that doesn't mean the end for the role of computation. Computation might be crucial for us to get things to have arbitrary um, dynamical profiles. So that's it. And uh, you can, if you want to um, see, uh, want to look at uh, a video of this talk again, or hear the audio, or maybe get the PowerPoint files, then in about a week or so, uh, you can fa find them at uh, this address, e-asterisk.blogspot.com. And I'm uh, always welcome to discuss these things. I mean, you're always welcome to discuss these things with me. I'm always open to it. So you can email me at that address there. Thanks.